Welcome to the Against Nice podcast, where we believe people who try to be nice are truly trying to be cruel. But we do believe in kindness, where people have other people's interests in at heart, but they're also willing to say the things that are tough to say. That's what we talk about on the Against Nice podcast. There is a distinction between kindness and niceness. Thanks for joining us today. By the way, you can support us by going to glow.fm forward slash against nice. That's glow.fm forward slash against nice. Uh, you can do a monthly contribution there as a member. Uh, also, you can do a one-time gift. Uh, so you can support us well there. And uh, thank you also to all our sponsors. Now, without further ado, I want to introduce our guest today. Bruce Gore is really kind of a man of all trades. Uh, I ran it across Bruce on YouTube because I'm kind of geeky about things, uh, listening to issues related to science, mathematics, but also philosophy and theology. I kind of spend some portion of my morning listening to what someone else has to say other than me. I ran across Bruce through the YouTube timeline. You can find him there, Bruce Gore. He's from Spokane, Washington. Um, his, his biography will be in the link and in the show notes, so make sure you check those out. But he taught at the former Moody Bible Institute Northwest in Spokane. He got his law degree from Gonzaga University there, uh, was a lawyer until 2002 when he retired, and then taught at uh, Oaks Classical Christian Academy there in Spokane. He's now fully retired. Uh, since about 2014. Now, he's a former Baptist turned Reformed Presbyterian. He was challenged, and he'll talk about more about this, but he was challenged while teaching at this classical academy that uh, about finding connections of history and the Bible turned into something really dramatic and I think very useful for the Christian, uh, for even Jewish believers, because there's a lot of information there that helps correlate where the actual connections between history and the Bible. So I wanted to have a discussion with him about that. We we kind of hit at the roots of the American Constitution a little bit, uh, talk a little bit about uh, theological perspectives and how they've affected culture. Of course, you know, United States has been highly informed by the Judeo-Christian ethic. Well, where are we at right now with all that? What's the consequence of all the changes that are taking place? Uh, that we kind of hit on some of these topics, and then I catch a few special key aspects of those historical connections with history. So uh, you're going to enjoy this podcast. Bruce is pretty solid. Again, I do want to ask for your support of our podcast, Against Nice, uh, glow.fm forward slash against nice. Without further ado, here's Bruce Gore and me talking. All right, I want to welcome everyone to the podcast today. Um, we have a professor, and I'll let you clarify that as much as you want, Bruce Gore <laughs> from Spokane, Washington on. Folks, uh, I, I've I run across Bruce's work on YouTube and I think there's some fascinating stuff that a lot of people 
don't think through when it comes to how does the Bible really connect in history and what are the implications of that knowledge? I mean, most people don't have that knowledge and Bruce has spent a lot of time developing that knowledge. And I, so I wanted to bring him on the podcast today. And I, so welcome, Bruce. I, I really appreciate well, you taking you. some time. Yeah. I thank you. Appreciate uh, you having me on. You bet. Thanks. So give people a little background about you. I, I, you've got a very kind of a yeah. varied history. <laughs> I think you've gone through a few different things. You've gone through a teaching career and a legal career and, but yeah. give people a quick still, uh, summary still of who you are. Still yeah. trying to figure out what I'm going to be when I grow up, you know. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, at 75 <laughs> years old, I figure I better settle down and do something here. But, uh, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you know, I uh, when I first got out of college, it was in the early 70s, and I was a newsman for a while. So I was in media, uh, ran around uh, and interviewing people and so on. But uh, I'd always had a kind of a side interest in Bible and teaching. I grew up in a Christian home, Baptist, in fact, and and uh, so out of college, I uh, kind of bluffed my way into a little school that started here in Spokane called Inland Empire School of the Bible. It doesn't exist anymore. It was purchased eventually by Moody. So it was a Moody school for a while, and then it's uh, locally owned again. But I was there for about seven years. And that's kind of where I got it under my skin that I wanted to uh, teach. These were post-high school kids, but most of them were new converts just fresh off the turnip truck. This was kind of the end of the Jesus movement. So we got some of the people out of that, uh, that particular culture. You know, so it was a very interesting, uh, kind of fun time for me. Kind of early but, to mid seventies, right? Correct. Yeah, this was yeah. Uh, early to mid seventies. Exactly. And uh, so what happened, oddly enough, uh, I, your viewers probably are familiar with the term dispensationalism. Uh, the school was heavily committed to that particular eschatological outlook. And that was, in fact, the view I held at the time when I just mm -hmm. got out of college. And uh, over the course of about seven or eight years of teaching and being required to. I became increasingly troubled at what I viewed as so many loose ends and so much special pleading and really mm -hmm. interpretive jumps that just I couldn't quite justify except by taking somebody's word for it, you know? Um, right. and, and so it was, it was uh, troubling and, and it was kind of along the way, you, you know, the name R.C. Sproul, I suppose. Of and, course, uh, absolutely. About, you know, about uh, four or five years into that career at the school, I came across a couple of cassettes by him. This was, uh, this was way back. <clears throat> These were early uh, R.C. Sproul tapes, he made them at Ligonier Valley Study Center, which was in Stallstown, Pennsylvania. So it was before they moved to Orlando. So this was kind of the early raw R.C. But, you know, the guy just, uh, it was it was almost, uh, I would say, uh, supernatural the way that he kind of addressed all the issues that have been troubling me so much. So in 1980, I uh, actually resigned on good on good terms with the school, but I told them I just couldn't teach this view without mental reservation. And that's what they required you do. Sign every year a document, no mental reservation about pre-tribulation, pre-millennial, you know, whatever, all of that stuff. And so I, I actually spoke at graduation that fall but uh, or that spring. But nevertheless, that was the end of that. So I was kind of bounced out of a job, needed something to do. So I went to law school and, and uh, practiced law for about 20 years. 
And in the process of practicing law, I also had the chance to teach at Whitworth University, which is my alma mater, uh, adjunct. I was never full-time, uh, but uh, taught out there a variety of courses, the Book of Romans, ethics, uh, some history, that kind of thing. And uh, so that was really a great experience, and it, it kind of solidified my own understanding, I would say, of things. In, uh, in 19, or around the year 2000, I uh, closed down my law, my law practice and, and went back to teaching. And this was at a classical Christian school here in Spokane called the Oaks. I was teaching uh, high school kids, upper division high school. And one of the first jobs they handed me was to teach a course they wanted to call Historical Context of the Bible. And I thought, well, I know something about historical context of the Bible. How hard can it be? You know, I've heard of the Persians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians. So I figure I could <laughs> bluff my way through. And what I found out was when you stand up five days a week in front of a bunch of you know, pretty bright high schoolers, uh, you run out of material a lot sooner than you thought you would. And, uh, and so that spurred my interest in taking a deeper look at it. So really, I wrote a book on it, but it was driven. I couldn't find a good textbook, uh, so I started assembling stuff. And, and I thought, well, I'm not enough of an expert to really have critical apparatus at my disposal, but I can at least take a look at what seemed to be the most widely accepted secular scholarly views of ancient chronology and lay it down against what's widely viewed as acceptable biblical chronology, put the two timelines beside each other and see you know, if anything makes sense. And so that's basically what I did. So I wrote a book that became a textbook eventually uh, that was really trying to do that. It's not groundbreaking research, but it did force me to kind of get into the issues and read some good material. And, and uh, so that was, that was kind of the genesis of the one and only book that I've ever written or ever will yeah. write. But uh, but anyway, that that got me into that that field. I don't know. I you, you probably could if you're looking for stuff to do. There's a whole lot of material to relate all this to yeah. current understanding and even bring it today. In fact, I'm I'm going to want to talk a little bit about that in this. But you know, it's so funny. You and I, <laughs> we're just getting to know one another. You and I have such a similar background. Really? I was bought in. <laughs> to the dispensationalism as well. Uh, I came to Christ in 1981 mm. as a 16-year-old kid at a uh, boarding school in Tennessee called the Webb School. Oh. Just miraculous kind of uh, experience. Uh, I got turned on to R.C. Sproul some years yeah. later. Mm. Uh, I, I, was, I found that I was being reformed, and oddly, it was kind of... <laughs> Uh, Charles Stanley's fault, even though he always was fighting against the Calvinists in the Baptist <laughs> church, but because he said, you know, yeah, well, if you're not walking in it, well, then you ain't it, you know, and, yeah. and anyway, right. just an interesting transformation, but yeah, dispensationalism, man, I've really found it hard to mm -hmm. force myself into this way of thinking. And even right. though I, I cannot I wouldn't say that I'd, I'd issue everything that people say on eschatology, because I think we don't really understand what the sure. end times are going to be precisely. There's a lot mm -hmm. to understand. But but beyond the eschatological uh, implications of dispensationalism, all of the uh, explanations of how we got here 
just really did see special pleading is a very good word that you say. There's a lot of that in yeah. dispensationalism, but I think what's worse is that it causes us not to understand scripture. Yeah. And, and I, I think, think so. for the Christian, that's the key aspect mm-hmm. of these problems. Would you not agree with that? Is, oh yeah. A Absolutely. lot of problems in our society right now. Yeah. Of- it's, I mean, we all do this. We all are driven to some degree by our presuppositions. So I'll just, you know, acknowledge that right off the bat. But, yeah. but there's really a truckload of presuppositions that uh, dispensational tends to bring to the to the Bible, in order to reach the conclusions it has to reach, and sometimes it involves a fair amount of imaginative interpretive uh, work. You know, like for example, just one example that comes to mind. You think of the so-called 70 weeks of Daniel, you know, so there you go, uh, Daniel chapter 9, 70 weeks, 490 years, and dispensationalism, in order to construct a scheme for the end time, says the 70th week of Daniel was detached from the first 69. Well, okay, I, I, I hear you say that, uh, and I can see why you'd want to say it, and I see how it makes your eschatological outlook work, but just exactly how did that, how did you reach the conclusion that it's legitimate to take the last week and move it out thousands of years into the future? There's certainly nothing in the text that would suggest you are warranted in doing that. You know, and it's that kind of thing. Uh, the thing that actually loosened my mortar the most was the repeated and emphatic New Testament teaching that the seed of Abraham are people with faith in Christ. And there's a specific repudiation of some special distinct status for Jewish people as such. They're just w- one more set of human beings like the rest of us who need mercy and need grace. And from the New Testament point of view, there is no difference between Jew and Greek. And if there is no difference between Jew and Greek, the whole uh, substructure of dispensationalism collapses on the spot because they maintain that there is a distinction and that God is going to return to a program oriented to ethnic Jewish people in the world. The tribulation, the millennium are all going to involve ethnic Jewish people. And you just have to say, where is that in the New Testament? If anything, it's it's something the New Testament specifically repudiates as a as a way of thinking about how God works in history. So, you know, that was really at the heart of my problems with it. But I think there's a bunch of other issues. I, I'll agree. I come to the Bible. I'm a Calvinist, you know, so when I come to the Bible, I know I've got my Calvinistic lens on. But at least I, I try as best I can before God to say, help me not just be driven by what I already think the Bible says. Let me take a step back, hear it. And if it says something that jars me, don't just run from it, but think it through. You know, I think that's the way we have to study the Bible if we're going to make any progress in understanding it. Well, you know, and and by the way, we both are love R.C. Sproul and, and we're greatly benefited from that. He always talked about always this problem sometimes of being uh, held into your love lines uh, yeah, as a terminology right. he would use quite a bit. Yeah. And it, you know, you like we're not trying to come with this. Uh, I don't want to get overly philosophical for those who don't understand philosophy, but we're not we're not trying to go to the Bible with a tabula rasa, uh, yeah. you know, type right. of approach where where whatever the Bible throws at us as we're reading it is what is and how we go. No, no, there's there are some established things there, but we do have to go uh, pulling out a lot of 
predefined notions that we have been taught mm-hmm. through our love lines. And yes. it doesn't matter if it's reformed or Arminian yeah. or whatever yeah. perspective you come from. You, when you draw that in too closely, I mean, there are yeah. some established things that we know, and, yeah. but, uh, but when you draw that in too closely, you can't make sure that you're not being conformed in that manner that I think gets, by the way, let's back up for a little bit. Dispensationalism, a definition of dispensationalism for the people who know philosophy out there. I take dispensationalism as being interestingly close to a Hegelian dialectical approach. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. To history. I mean, if you really yeah. think about it, which by the yeah. way, uh, Marx and not, I'm not saying that uh, dispensationalists are Marxists, but, but it, but Marxism takes from the Hegelian dialectic, which is this <laughs> cyclical approach to history, yeah. you know, almost yeah. uh, a Yatesian uh, approach to it. You know, the, the yeah. widening gyre of history <laughs> that keeps, and um, that, that also, I think it, it I think it takes to, uh, in, with respect to dispensationalists, many of whom I'm sure love Christ and want to expand, expand the gospel, sure. But I think that they take with a very worldly perspective of how history goes about. So give people a definition of dispensationalism, just for those who may not have approached it, at least by that name. Yeah, that's a, that is a great question and a little bit more complex than a person might suspect because it has evolved profoundly over the years. So if you ask what was dispensationalism originally, as uh, you know, John Darby, let's say back in the early 1800s, mm-hmm. crafted it, uh, and then as it was kind of popularized by C.I. Schofield, uh, you would say that that early form of dispensationalism was vastly further afield from traditional Orthodox Christianity than people might suspect. Uh, for example, the, the original Schofield Reference Bible, early 20th century, actually taught that in other dispensational, dispensations, people were saved by law, by some what it meant to be under the dispensation of the law. We're under the dispensation of grace. There's going to be the dispensation of the kingdom. And the original idea was every one of these dispensations, seven altogether, uh, by usually under dispensational thought, has a different system by which a person can be saved, you know. Um, well, that in itself would, yeah. would represent a pretty dissonant idea compared yeah. to traditional Christian understanding of all three branches, Catholic, uh, Eastern Protestant, none of them would have would have really countenanced such an idea. It was rather a novel, new notion. Well, even dispensationalists over the years became a little embarrassed by that, and it was gradually adjusted. So Ryrie, for example, wrote a book in the uh, what late sixties, early seventies called Dispensationalism Today, in yeah, which yeah. <laughs> he, he modified a whole lot of that, really cleaned house quite a bit, and made dispensationalism substantially more orthodox than than it had been earlier quick Um, side note my very first bible was a ryrie study bible oh there you go just to tell you how i how i got that now (laughs) by the way it was new american standard version and i'm definitely still even though i love some there are some other good ones that's that's (laughs) yeah that's right but yeah you know ryrie's a good scholar i'm not you know i'm not yeah great scholar yeah 
but he was trying to stay, keep at least one foot solidly in the dispensational world while, uh, while trying to adjust some of the more embarrassing elements. Well, you know, so you say, if, if you look at what it is today, then it probably mainly boils down to how a person sees the end times, that it, uh, uh, some of the more extravagant views uh, of the prior dispensations, the age of civil government, the age of conscience, the age of this and that, have don't have quite as much traction as they once did, but they they hold quite emphatically to an end time scenario, which usually means there's going to be a rapture. For the most part, it's understood it's a so-called pre-tribulation rapture, and that that is going to issue forth a time of great trouble in the world, in which Israel, uh, the state of Israel, presumably the present current state of Israel is going to be the centerpiece. The church is gone. Christians are gone. You know, I mean, that in itself is astonishing, but it's still part of traditional dispensational thought that there's going to be uh, some great uh, Armageddon-type war that'll take place. Christ comes back, in a sense, to rescue his people and establishes an earthly kingdom. That's yeah. still pretty much intact in dispensational thought. And so I think even a contemporary dispensationalism, while they've, uh, dispensationalists, while they've adjusted some of their views and probably still hold pretty tightly to that kind of end times uh, uh, structure of how they view it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to want to get, I definitely want to get in as we move on here to some of the history that you've researched related to old Testament scripture. Cause there's so much there and a lot of interesting things that people probably most Christians don't know of how history ties in to what you're they're reading in scripture but before we get down that path just to pick up on what you're talking about and how is it that we got to this place where this sort of eschatological approach um became so prevalent in in the church in the west in particular mm -hmm. but really worldwide if you think about it over the last yeah. two three hundred years how did how is it that yeah. we got there because that is not the way most people thought no before well, that time in the church history, yeah, it was uh, you know, it was a funny kind of combination of forces. The turn of the twentieth century in America, uh, of course, was the general uh, furor at the time in the Christian world was called the modernist controversy. The modernist controversy was largely the mixing of what had become pretty well established European liberalism in the Christian world. Uh, mixing with uh, basically evangelical Christianity in the states, conservative Christianity. And uh, that particular form of viewing uh, the Christian faith, which tended to minimize the miraculous, tended to minimize human sinfulness, tended to place more of an accent on, uh, on simply the Christian ethic as opposed to an atoning sacrifice offered by Christ, all of that met with a huge amount of negative reaction in the states. And uh, it appeared that the seminaries especially were beginning to be increasingly influenced by that kind of liberal or modernist view that was being shipped over from the continent. Yeah. And so uh, the, and you know, there was a lot of the Scopes trial, 1925, there were events that took place that exacerbated the problem, but that was kind of what was going on. Well, it just so happens that C.I. Schofield, 
who was a reasonably recent convert at the time and was converted under influences that were connected with John Darby and uh, a Presbyterian pastor named Brooks, uh, who I think was in Philadelphia and some other forces kind of shaped him early on. He had been a lawyer, and, and uh, but he became a Christian, and he was very taken with this notion that we're living in the end times. Mm-hmm. Very bright guy. And uh, so he, over the course of several years, published a book, and or, uh, the, the reference Bible, the, the uh, Schofield reference Bible, in which he took the position that in the end times, the church was going to be lukewarm. It's going to be going from bad to worse. It's going to be a time of slippage. We're going to be losing our orthodox moorings. Well, these people took a look at what was happening in the world. They thought, you know, this is it. Look at this. You know, the church is sliding off the, the edge here. And, and uh, the, it gave a mentality of we're living in the end times. Uh, <clears throat> there's no reason to keep going out there and trying to change the world. That ain't going to happen. It's <laughs> over. We're heading. The train is heading into the end time station, the best we can do is just try to salvage some souls as we can, you know, before Jesus comes and and the whole thing is over. I I used to be at radio and I remember J. Vernon McGee, who was a staunch dispensationalist, liked to use the phrase, why polish the brass on a sinking ship? You know, if you're on the ship Titanic, you don't spend time rearranging the deck chairs. You, You know, there's more. And that was kind of his view politics, why go out and try to be involved in long-term investment of time and money, because we know we're not going to be here that much longer. And so I think that kind of captured the evangelical imagination. It's the end times. We need to withdraw from political and other, you know, involvements in the world, kind of have a fortress mentality and and uh, pray and sing hymns and wait for Jesus to come back and do some evangelism, but nothing that really speaks to the broader implementation of the wider effects of the gospel in the world. And, and you know, so I think that, that unfortunately, it, it sort of marginalized evangelical Christians just at a time when that kind of liberal influence was beginning to infiltrate the culture. And, and so it kind of sent us off in a bad direction. I, I think we still haven't really recovered from that as a culture, a Christian culture, as much as uh, I'd like to think we could, but and there, I think that's kind of where it happened. Early 20th century, yeah, those seem to be the forces that coalesce to send us off in that direction. One bit of history I think uh, that a lot of Christians aren't aware of is the break from Princeton Theological Seminary yeah. that J. Gresham Machen made yeah. uh, back in the 1920s, I think it was. Yes. And, uh, you know, B.B. Warfield was the great theologian of Princeton Theological Seminary for many years and one of the great right. theologians of of world history. And by the way, yeah. you know, like you met, did mention, guys like Riley and Schofield were actually, you know, they they had their positives. I mean, they did they yeah, did do absolutely. some things that were quite, yeah. quite helpful for the church. Riley, I mean, I I'm glad I learned a lot. By the way, J. Vernon McGee, who was actually. Like a lot of people, because he had that country accent, a lot of people right. didn't realize that guy was one heck of a theologian. Yeah, he was. And, yeah. Uh, and I'm glad because the Lord used him in my life to help with my brain. But yeah, I just mm-hmm. ended up disagreeing with him on these things. What? But uh, Machem was very concerned about the drift of the church mm-hmm. into that modernist Yes. A uh, skeptical approach to theology that really got its uh, foothold, as you say, in continental Europe yeah. in the 19th century. Um, 
but the break was not just the the rise of arminianism as the mm-hmm. fundamental approach to, to um soteriology you know the the right the, right the study yeah. of salvation and so forth in the bible breaking from the calvinist lutheran august mm-hmm. augustinian right uh, way mm-hmm. of looking at this so uh fine it's it is orthodox arminianism is orthodox i agree there's great troubles with it in my mind and and, and i've pulled away from it but that's become the dominant thinking but machin wasn't only concerned about that he was concerned about the church breaking from its moorings of affecting the culture i think and you do a whole lot which we're not going to talk much about now and hopefully we can do a future broadcast to do so you do a large series about um american history yeah and how particularly the presbyterian church but really the church in general Mm -hmm. had its influence in american culture there was a time when the church believed that we must be deeply part of culture Mm -hmm. and i think that what you're referring to really relates to that and i i'm I'm concerned that the these eschatological theories that have had prevalence in the church have totally thrown us away i've been involved in politics since 1992 when mike pence introduced me to my first uh, political Mm -hmm. job you know and and i've been fighting with people in the church people who aren't in the church that care and getting them involved in politics for some time i think it's for want of good people being involved that we're seeing these breakdowns that we're having right now what yeah. you're talking about is the core of that problem in my mind yeah. what what yeah. why is that such a threat how, how is it that we got there beyond the fact that we allowed this eschatological thinking this end times falsehood uh to come into the american mind beyond that how have we got here what do we need to do to get out of that maybe what what is your christian <laughs> question understand yeah it is, it is a good question. you know the uh i i think that there's a bit of an irony um i can't remember the whole uh cycle here there was a, a fellow named alexander tyler you know that name and he was a historian he wrote he was lived about the time of the american revolution but he wrote a a book which was analyzing history generally to his time and he said most uh, most great civilizations go through a 200-year cycle in which they begin in slavery, as slavery produces courage, courage produces uh, noble deeds. I, I can't remember the whole thing, but, but uh, anyway, the, the point is, after a while, you get prosperity. The prosperity tends to engender laziness, and the laziness tends to wind up going back into slavery, you know, and you can almost yeah. see that cycle in American history. We we inherited a huge amount of the positive benefits of hardworking Puritan theology. And uh, it developed a kind of work ethic in America that certainly is a good thing. And, you know, we think about American ingenuity and all of that. That's all kind of that Americana culture, which if, uh, you know, if a person's honest, you have to trace it back to the, that Puritan work ethic and, and so on. Well, the problem is uh, that works well for the first, second generation, but by the third generation, people are getting pretty much accustomed to living the good life. They just take it for granted. You know, everything's always going to be good. We're fine. Everything's fine. It's prosperous. And, and, and when we lose track of the fact that these blessings are coming as a result of, of a responsible obedience to God's way of doing life, when we lose sight of that, then we are opening the door to 
the dark forces of hellish spirits, you might say, you know, reaching into our culture. And we find out eventually, but usually too late, that nice order not to be taken for granted. It's like Ronald Reagan said, we're, we're never more than one generation away from losing our freedoms. It's a, you know, it's a constant vigilance that's required, especially of Christian people, to realize that we're always kind of right at the edge and we have to keep our, our focus uh, intact. And if we don't, we're, we're likely to lose. I think what we've seen in the last few years in American culture is a testament to how desperately we need the gospel. Because when you eject the gospel from a culture, darkness comes in. People start throwing Molotov cocktails at others, and you see violence, gratuitous, uh, you know, horrible behavior. You would never expect it in the United States, and there it is happening. Shootings, uh, you know, all of this. Uh, and people are astonished, but they shouldn't be. The, you know, the, the reason we haven't had it as much as, as we have lately is because we've had a more conspicuous uh, presence of the gospel in the public square, and we've kind of lost it. So we're reaping the results of our negligence, I think. Even as Christians, we have to say we've been a little bit negligent and really uh, doing the courageous thing and keeping the gospel out there, not just in church, but in the public square, not being embarrassed at the name of Jesus and not being embarrassed to remind people of the ethic that he calls us to. And I, when, we, when we neglect all of that, we're going to reap a harvest. Yeah, it, it seems that that is our biggest problem right now. I, I am quite frustrated by the fact that uh, Christians have refused to be a part of the answer. Hmm. And, and they've sat by the side. And, and of course, this dispensationalist approach to uh, the end times is part of it. They have, it's not everything, but it is part of it. They've sat off to the side and they're just waiting for it to all fall apart and saying, mm -hmm. no, we're, we're going to rush in and change it. You know, one of the things that I talk about, and I definitely, I, I want to get into uh, some of the historical stuff that we talk about here. But one of the things that frustrates me about Christians understanding of our constitutional system is they don't read the preamble. Yeah. I make note to people all the time. The fact that th we weren't created for this government. This government was created for us. Right. That's right. Okay. So, so how does the constitution start? I mean, this is the constitution. Remember, this isn't mm -hmm. just a declaration of instant independence, which is, is fantastic and fundamental, but is not a legal document. Okay. Mm -hmm. it, it was just a statement of, of breaking from great Britain, but the constitution, which does design the government says we, the people, Right. in order to form a more perfect union. Yeah. Th this has uh, very mm -hmm. real implications, even as it relates to Romans 13, mm -hmm. which we'll probably, as well as talking about American history, I probably want to talk to you about Romans 13. Maybe we mm -hmm. can talk a little bit about it now. But this misinterpretation of Romans 13, that we're just supposed to bow down in the mm -hmm. middle of COVID and say, shut our churches down, tell us yeah. what we're supposed to do, government, I think is a bogus understanding mm -hmm of Romans 13 and more to the point, <laughs> and this may or may not be true. I'm not a theologian, but if you ask me, we, the people means we're the magistrates. That's, that's what mm -hmm. Romans 13 says to, to uh, go with the magistrate. Well, maybe we're the magistrates since we tell the government <laughs> what to do. 
But even if we don't go that far, and I'm, I still think through that, the reality is the government is responsible to us. We are the sovereigns. Yeah. For good or for bad, we're the yeah. sovereigns, according to the yeah. Constitution. And Christians yeah. in particular should reassert that. So when we see these, po these politicians, Democrat or Republican, doing what they're doing, we should be looking at them. One other thing, having worked in Congress for two different congressmen for eight years, knowing most of these people, um, you realize, especially when it comes to Romans 13 and that word magistrate, be subject to the magistrates. Well, no legislator is a magistrate. They just make the laws. The magistrate is the one that says what the laws mm -hmm. are doing. And in my opinion, I tell people all the time, you deserve to give congressman or any other elected legislator no more respect than you would give any human being and you should give them the respect of a human being but you should never respect them in the way that romans 13 is talking about you should get yeah. in their faces and say you're doing what's wrong this yeah. is what the constitution says do, do you do you agree with me in this assessment does, <laughs> does this seem to to kind of play into what you're saying in any way i'm just curious well it's yeah, yeah you know it's interesting that uh that that was the uh, most lively debate, I suppose, uh, in the run-up to the American Revolution, you had Christian people sharply divided in the colonies between those two schools of thought. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, you had people who were saying, hey, the king is the king, you know, read Romans 13, what part of that don't you get? He's the king, you're supposed to submit and end of conversation. And then people like Sam Adams and a lot of others were saying, oh, hold the phone. <laughs> you know, uh, there are uh, unalienable rights. Uh, you know, God has created us. And and uh, though we, and it's very much to your point, uh, we, the people, uh, create government as a matter of convenience for us. We all come into this world, you know, in what's the so-called state of nature. We all come into this world equal. We're nobody is born automatically with some sort of superior status. They may claim it. Somebody may claim to be an aristocrat or a nobleman. But the fact is, before God, we all come into this world with equal dignity, equal freedom, you know. And, and then I say, well, as a matter of convenience, in order to make sure I can enjoy my freedom, uh, let's, you know, we the people create an apparatus which has the responsibility to guard this, which are our inalienable rights from God to secure those rights so that I can enjoy them without stressing out night and day or constantly having to preoccupy myself with defending myself. You know, let's, let's have a police force or let's have whatever. And, and so the legitimacy of government is really depends pretty heavily on a recognition that government is here for me not I'm here for it. And, and uh, I do think Romans 13 has been uh, read somewhat extravagantly to argue that we are more on the line of subjects right. than, than those who have been brought into this world by God and have a, we have a reciprocal duty uh, to the government to, to uh, support it, but only so far as it doesn't start trampling on god-given rights and at that point they become illegitimate yeah. so it's uh you know it's a it's a it's not an easy uh thread to, uh, needle to thread you know but at the same time in principle i think there's been a, a pretty significant misunderstanding of what romans 13 is calling us to do and and there have been interpretations i, I have uh 
group of friends. One of them is a professor at Indian University, a tenured professor there, goes to my church. And then another one is a friend of mine who's who's run for political office as a libertarian many times, by the way, here in Indiana. We were talking recently about that interpretation. And my friend, my the professor friend says to me, uh, he had heard something. What did I think? I've heard very strained extravagant interpretations of Romans 13, where we just roll over everybody. I think that there's a serious matter there. By the way, it sounds like you and I are a little closer in our interpretation. R.C. Sproul was somewhat restrictive Mm -hmm. in his interpretation of Romans 13. And I think that's an important, by the way, perspective to hear. And God forbid, I don't know how to (laughs) you know go against rc sproul who's one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century he'd never said it but he was but nonetheless um i think you can go way off the deep end in your interpretation as well too but my my basic problem and 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 we're going to get there by the way because there's so much in history that you have talked about we want to talk about your book and we're going to get into some old Testament connections into your book Mm -hmm. as well too. But as we're rolling there briefly. So one of my problems though, with this strict interpretation of Romans 13 is that until 2018, when I left Congress, um, I knew very well or was acquainted with every Congressman who claimed to be a Christian. Um, Protestant or Catholic too, by the way. And I worked for, for one who was a Catholic, who's a dear friend of mine still to this day. But um, here's what I noticed about 80% of them. I say vote like Satan. Now I hate to be so harsh, but I'm going to explain why, because they're all antinomians. Mm -hmm. Why do I say that? Because none of them, and an antinomianism is against law. That's goes into the Greek to Greek root words. Um, the, uh, the concept of antinomianism is against law, whereas law is not fundamental. When you get into old Testament scripture, you recognize how serious God is about law in his holiness and his demand of righteousness of Israel in particular at that time. Now, um, if someone is a Christian and really believes in the Bible, then they recognize how serious they should recognize how serious God is about truth, about righteousness, and about Mm -hmm. law. And we've got that constitution sitting out there, and we spend 70 to 80 percent of our money in our federal budget outside Article One, Section (laughs) Eight restrictions. That's a long discussion. But nonetheless, that Christians, and by the way, there are political realities to how we got as far as we are Mm. and how you draw that back. You can't, you know, bite off the elephant in one chew. I grant that. But nonetheless, you should be darn serious about it. And most of them aren't. They just go along with what leadership tells them. And, you know, we're just, we're just trying to, you know, whatever. They don't even think about the constitution. I worked for Thomas Massey from Kentucky. He's getting a lot of heat recently for voting for this debt ceiling deal here in 2023 Mm. and uh and then not voting for the first adam schiff uh Mm. uh censure okay Mm -hmm. now by the way i'd have voted just the opposite of him on both of those and i love thomas and i you know i I, he's a good guy but one of the things is even in that disagreement everyone wants to throw him off the deep end now 
But I tell people all the time, listen, all those people that voted the way you liked, most of them don't read the Constitution at all, much less every day like Thomas does. This is what I'm getting at in antinomianism. If you're not serious about the law that's in front of you, how can you say you're even serious about God's law if you claim Christ? This is a serious issue. Like this is Christians can really have a massive influence on culture if they're willing to assert it, it seems to me. Yeah. And the fact is there are enough Christians in this culture that it could virtually be transformed overnight. Right. When you think about the disproportionate influence that uh, say woke culture is having, uh, you think, um, you know, if, if hell can act, exercise that much influence, then how much more could the rule of Christ exercise influence if God's people just stepped up and, and uh, had the courage to stand out in the public square and speak the truth of Christ? But uh, it's tough to do. You know, it can be very expensive to do. I think we've seen enough uh, well-planned strategic arrests and abuses of people yeah. uh, in the last years to know that it is not exactly a Sunday school picnic. If you're going to go out there and be a courageous Christian, uh, there's a price tag attached to that sometimes that can be pretty significant. So I I can appreciate why people are less than enthusiastic about that, but there's a lot at stake. I've, uh, I've was very impressed studying more closely the, the founding era and these, uh, these people, they weren't all card-carrying Puritans or Calvinists in, you know, in the narrow sense, but they were all heirs of a certain heritage that came especially out of the Reformed wing of the Protestant Reformation, and that was the culture of the day. And it did engender a fair amount of hostility to government abuse, right. uh, and, and that, is, that was really the birth pangs of this nation, and we've, we've wandered a, you know, a ways away from that, and I think very much at our peril. Um, I don't know if we're going to get it back or not. Who knows? But uh, but I hope that we'll we'll see. And another, you know, one of the things that um, I did a short series you mentioned it called Presbyterians in the American Revolution. Uh, <clears throat> not really distinctly focused on the Presbyterians, but I happen to be one, so I just yep. use that yep. as a convenient title. But uh, one of the most powerful influences. Of course, running up to the revolution was the preaching of George Whitfield, who was himself an Anglican, but, a, but an astonishing uh, evangelist. And he really galvanized a, a sort of a self-image in the colonies of something very different from simply 13 disparate colonies over here. And so I, I'll tell you, I pray every day for God to raise up another George Whitfield. I mean, somebody that's bigger than life, somebody that speaks you know, words of courage to a, to power and uh, forces a hearing. I, it takes a spiritual revolution before you get a political revolution, if it's going to be any kind of proper revolution. And so I think that's where we need to really focus our efforts to, to be courageous in proclaiming the word of Christ and praying for voices that are bigger than life, you know. Yeah. I, I don't know anybody out there right now. I know some courageous preachers. I pray for them. I, I want them to keep on. But but somebody that kind of rises way above the uh, the landscape and becomes a dominant force in the culture, I think we're ripe for that. I hope, you know, God has it in his plan to bring something like that along one of these days. Well, Whitfield and Edwards both, by the way. And, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. 
you know, I've said for some time here and I'm, our prayers are quite similar, but I've been praying for a third grade awakening for yeah. you know, a couple of decades now. You see what, by the way, we should be deeply involved in politics. Christians should, Absolutely. if they are not, and I'm not saying yeah. they have to be as deeply involved as I have been, by the way, I get that. Not everybody can do that. I always tell people I I'm doing this so you don't have to, but nonetheless, um, they should be involved. And, uh, but we can't work. You can do that and we should do that. But along the way, we need a third grade awakening. Like I'm not Mm. certain that we have much hope, by the way, will third grade awakening mean everybody's going to turn to Christ in the culture? No, No, it doesn't. But what it will mean primarily is a transformation of Christians and the church one Mm. that will be so profound that two, it influences the culture deeply. We need that right now more than anything, because actually I'm certain that most Americans feel captured, excuse me, captured. Uh, They feel bound up by this woke movement that Mm -hmm. denies basic science as it relates to sexuality, that denies basic understandings of economics, of thrift, of doing things the right way, of choosing well with, with scarce resources. Um, and the American Revolution was an early example of, of, of how we had to do that. Now, I'm I'm wanting to, though, on that basis, to try to, first of all, to transition to Old Testament stuff that I want to talk to you about, but to try to give some perspective for Christians. How does this challenge, especially in light, in light of Romans 13, relate to what Christians went through when they had no dominance in Roman mm-hmm. culture at the birth of the church? Do you have any perspectives on that? Any thoughts? Maybe just talk about that history just briefly, but how you think it yeah. might even relate. Sure. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's, you know, I, you made a comment a couple of minutes ago about COVID. Um, and it, there, there's a connection here. <laughs> so, But I know many, there were some churches that courageously said, you know, okay, government, you can say what you want. We're going to keep meeting. We're going to keep singing. We're going to keep praising. And and because you happen to be trampling on space here that happens to belong to King Jesus. He's the sovereign sovereign here, not you. You know, there's a, there's a sharp distinction between King Jesus and his crown rights and what the governor of a given state might tell us to do. And if we have to choose between the two, then we need to choose appropriately. Well, a lot of churches weren't prepared to go there. They, you know, once the government gave its uh, so-called guidelines, then then it required uh, in their minds that we all kind of lay down and play dead and, and forget that Jesus calls us to something different and something better. Well, in the first century, I think Christians had a much more clear-eyed understanding of what Jesus had just established. He had established a kingdom. When he uh, said, uh, you repent for the kingdom of God is rolling into the station, friends, it's arriving. Here it is. Uh, that wasn't just poetry. He wasn't talking about something, you know, millennia in the future. This was his establishing of his kingdom, which had been predicted through the Old Testament. And they had a pretty good idea that that means you obey Christ. And, and as he establishes his church, that church it's certainly going to be deferential to government, but not going to be obedient at any point that lets government trench upon the uh, the sovereign rights of Jesus. Well, it didn't take long for Rome to figure out that that represented a threat, you know. Right. Uh, interestingly, at the beginning, 
It was more the Jewish threat that was giving problems to the Christian movement. But by the time Nero came along, uh, the focus had changed. I don't think Nero was, was attacking the church because he saw in it a, a great threat to his uh, rule, but he was looking for a scapegoat, you know, because of a fire, all of that. You're probably familiar with that. But, yep. but nevertheless, it kind of opened the door to a, more of a hostile relationship there. And the sporadic persecutions that tended to take place from then on in the Roman world were largely driven by concern with this growing movement that was giving its allegiance to some authority besides Rome. They didn't mind if you had your private deity. Okay, fine, you know, but if you're going to start uh, giving ultimate allegiance to something besides Rome, uh, Houston, we have a problem kind of thing. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's what began to, uh, to hit the psyche of people like Marcus Aurelius and Antoninus Pius and some of these mid-2nd century Roman uh, rulers who, who, were, uh, who were really uh, viewing the Christian movement, oddly, as a, a political threat, not just a religious dissent, but an actual political threat to their well-being. Well, it was a political threat, and uh, in spite of their attempts to stamp it out, the Christian movement kept growing, insinuating itself into every level of Christian society, so that finally Rome caved, you know, in the early fourth century. Constantine comes along and says, okay, uncle, <laughs> you win, you know. Well, and, by the way, uh, he said he said uncle to King Jesus, apparently, or at least they would believe. That's right. But I, but I but, but also but also, you know, they were inserting themselves into the political culture in various parts of the Roman Empire, even yeah. through Marcus Aurelius and Antonius yeah. Pius's uh yeah. uh administration of Rome. I mean, which is yeah. interesting. They started injecting themselves in a serious yes. way, respectful but serious, mm -hmm. not backing yeah. down, uh yeah. seeing opposition. So how does that relate to what the Christian ought to be thinking about today? Because I'm, I'm convinced there aren't too many Christians like me that are willing to wade into that debate and be attacked. I mean, one of these days you could do some searches on me, Bruce, and you'll see how much I get attacked in the media, particularly <laughs> in Colorado, where I was. But um, but th that that kind of willingness to work through that is not prevalent in my mind. In yeah. Christian culture right now, yeah, no, it isn't, and uh, and I tell you, I I don't have an easy answer. You know, I mean, you're doing what you can, I do what I can. We, you have to work with what you got. I've got certain gifts, you've got certain gifts. Every Christian has a gift set, mm -hmm. and you have to ask Jesus, okay, how can I use the resources you've entrusted to me? to make a difference, not just in my home, my family, whatever, but in this world that you've planted me in right now. And, and it's going to be a different answer for every person that comes along. Yeah. But uh, there's certainly a place uh, for uh, Christian people to, to be prepared to, to say foul ball. It's like, you know, God invests authority in the people and we, the people create government and to insist that the government that we've created uh, provide answers to us for its conduct. That's just part and parcel of what it is to be a decent citizen. If we do anything less than that, then we're really falling short of our fiduciary obligation as uh, you know, as citizens of a, of a country. Uh, the difficulty is we've been negligent for so long, Jeff, 
that there's a huge amount of power that's become concentrated in a relatively small number of people. We are living in a true oligarchy right now with a little bit of, uh, you know, democratic window dressing. Mm -hmm. So we like to think that we kind of control the levers of government, but we really don't. You've got, you know, trillions of dollars backing up a few people who, who believe they've kind of confused themselves with God and think that they can uh, make up life the way it's supposed to be. Well, that's, that's tough. I mean, but I'm not underestimating what Jesus can do. The kings of the world take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, but the one who sits in heaven scoffs. Well, in some ways, we Christians need to join him in scoffing a bit, but not walk away from the fight, go out there and, and wage yeah. the battle. And, you know, yeah. fortunately, happily, there's a lot of good, you know, news sources, that kind of thing that are out there that are the beating the drum for a much more credible understanding of what's happening in the world. We should support them. We should, you know, do whatever we can to, to, uh, yeah, all the voices, conservative truck radio, all of these are ways to, to try to, uh, have an influence, but what any given person can do, um, really probably varies with every person you talk to. I wish I had a better answer for you. It's a, we're in a, yeah. you know, you, you think about we're not far from where Nazi Germany was in the thirties. Uh, you know, people just couldn't believe things were going to be so bad. And somebody like a maniac, like Hitler can come along and just, just keep pushing the buttons until finally people wake up one day and ask, where did our country go? And I'm afraid we're, we're sort of moving in that direction, and I hope we have uh, some courageous voices uh, that'll that'll you know at least be a big impediment to that. that well, and also this this isn't the first iteration of this problem, so a lot of people forget the fact that going back to that same time period you just referred to, Mussolini was praised and lauded here mm -hmm. in the United States, and he really <laughs> is the founder of that fascist principle. Yeah. Which, by the way, is not a right-wing ideology at all. It is, no, no, it no. is in the sense that it's corporate. Yeah, it is. It is in the sense that it's corporatist, and it yeah. and and it uses corporations to get its job done. But it's a socialist ideology. I, but, uh, um, I read a just yeah. interaction, just interrupted yeah. there for a second, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. I read a great book you're probably familiar with by uh, Dinesh D'Souza, uh, entitled "The Big Lie." I yeah. don't know if you ever came across that, but oh, the yeah. whole book devoted to the proposition that Hitler, who's often called a right-wing extremist, was actually a left-wing extremist. And that's yeah. the way he was viewed originally. And the big lie was to convert him into this so-called <laughs> so right-wing you know, guy, which he certainly yeah. wasn't. He was a totalitarian. He was a statist. He was everything that true conservatism wouldn't be. But anyway, the, right. the, no, the National Socialist. the same way. Yeah. yeah, the Nazi party was the National Socialist National Party. Socialist, so, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and we, we forget that quite often. Uh, yeah. Mussolini, though, I think in many ways, as bad as Hitler was, and certainly on the back end of it, he's the one that had the most influence. Mussolini preached this fascist gospel, so to speak, which was bad news um, for a long time to the West. And they listened to him and it, it mm -hmm. was really, really bad. But and similar to these days. Uh, he utilized government power mm -hmm. and uh, uh, physical force of violence yeah. to subdue yeah. his opponents. Yeah. And this, there's so many similarities to that right now. That's yeah. why I've been talking, as we get ready to transition here to some Old Testament stuff, that's why I've been taught that this whole against nice concept that I do in my 
podcast is kind of based on Micah six, eight. He's shown you, oh man, mm. what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. And by the way, that's, that's the, um, uh, uh Hebrew word chesed, loving kindness there in, in terms of kindness. But like I, I tell people all the time, we, we have no command scripturally to be nice <laughs> at all. That's None. Right. There's no command to be nice. <laughs> There is a command to be kind, yeah. but, but let's kind of flesh that out a little bit. Yeah, like yeah. kindness looks like what we typically call niceness, but it mm -hmm. also looks like this. When your child is doing something wrong, exactly. it would be unkind not to discipline them. And no child yeah. being disciplined thinks it's very nice. Right. Yeah. So, right. so uh, it, it requires harsh sometimes mm -hmm. pushback to untruths in society and and christians should be doing that that's the whole foundation of what i am trying to do and, and it takes knowledge so that's why i i want to mm -hmm. get your knowledge here because we need that background knowledge to understand the foundations of all this to understand church history to understand history in general and and what right. are the implications of that without that understanding we can't knowledgeably take on society and it's right. fundamentally necessary to do that. We have a wealth of information, historically and otherwise, mm -hmm. in Scripture to understand how to navigate all this. We have great examples of people who went through challenging, difficult mm -hmm. circumstances yeah. and yet honored God in the process and moved society forward. Right. So so I'm curious from you, just to, to transition to this, I mean, what? Why do we want to know? And you, you, you were challenged by this because you were teaching kids who asked a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. Why do we want to know how history connects to biblical history? Before we talk about the challenges of even right. seeing how history can connect. By you know, being honest, I think there's there's several good answers to that. Uh, one is just we're called to be students of the Scripture. And while I know some people maintain an idea that, you know, the Bible is all sufficient, that's all I need to read, it's all I need <laughs> to study and never get outside the four corners of what's in the Bible, that's fine, you know. I'm, uh, but, but at the same time, the, the light that is shed on, on even casual Bible reading by having some concept of what's happening in the world, uh, it's just, it, it, it's, I think it's transformative. And it, uh, it, so that we, we can begin to see that what's happening in the scripture is happening in a context in which decisions that people are making are obviously being informed not only by the rule of God, but also by the, the challenges of the moment. Uh, you know, when Hezekiah is being challenged by Sennacherib, for example, just, you know, uh, that that this is not just this is not Aesop's fables. This is a guy who's facing a, a true threat to his well-being. He's the ruler, and he's uh, he's trying to do the right thing. Well, when we look at him and say, okay, what did the right thing look like in that context? What did it mean when he had those political uh, forces arrayed against him? It helps us appreciate how we can take the same principles and say, okay, what do I do now? You know, am I given uh, situation. So I, you know, I, it was, it was partly that I think, I think just knowing something of what's happening in the ancient world uh, 
that's outside the narrative of the Old Testament itself is a great faith builder. I think, you know, we can read the Bible and realize, you know, this really did happen. I mean, this, these are, these are reflections among the people of God of real evident threats from outside that, that they were taking seriously. And it helps us understand what faith looks like. But I think, you know, more maybe to the interest of your question, the, the Old Testament does have a political philosophy. And a lot of times people read the Old Testament and they kind of read right past it because mm -hmm. they're not looking for that. They're looking for devotional information or they're looking for, you know, something else, but they're not looking for a political philosophy. But if you read the books of Moses, you're real, and if you're looking for it, you know, and you read what exactly is he uh, implementing here, you begin to see that that there is uh, political apparatus at work, and it's deeper than one particular form of government. It's there even in a monarchy. It's there in a kind of republican approach with elders. It's there even in a kind of democratic situation. In other words, these are undergirding principles that are not simply the, the superstructure of a, of a form of government as such, but they are there uh, that support any form of government and give, you would say, proper rules by which it should be operating. And, you know, these are things like that uh, uh, the people are viewed, the people are viewed as the source of authority, uh, even uh, with the Ten Commandments. Uh, Exodus chapter 19, uh, the people are asked to voluntarily embrace in a covenantal way this set of rules that's being given by God. God doesn't come down and send a bunch of lightning bolts around and say, okay, right. now you got to admit. He doesn't do that. He right. looks for their voluntary submission, which attaches a whole lot of weight and dignity to the human participation in this, you know. The idea that there's accountability when Samuel was just about to uh, retire and hand, her, hand the reins over to King Saul, he makes this amazing speech. He gets up in front of all the people and says, okay, look, did I steal anybody's donkey? Did I take a bribe? Did I pervert justice? Did I do this? Did I... Call me on the carpet right now. I'll make it right. You know, it, this, is, this is what every politician should do. Instead of constantly right. running around covering their bases, how come we don't have a politician get up and ask that question with a straight face? Okay, where have I wronged you? You know, and that idea that people hold politicians accountable because they are our servants is kind of taken for granted, you know, in the biblical <clears throat> narrative. The idea that regardless of the form of government, there were elders. Mm -hmm. And these were people who were chosen by the people. These weren't uh, imposed. They weren't you know, appointed by some kind of, uh, you know, puppet master behind some curtain somewhere. These were people elected based on fair, honest elections, and they were elected because they were seen to be the most uh, credible, mature, wise people available. So they're put into these positions of leadership. These are all subject to dismissal even. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the idea that we actually, like you were saying earlier, control the reins. These people are working for us. We're paying their salary. And it's perfectly legitimate to, to insist on that kind of accountability. And there's other things. I mean, those are just coming to mind, you know, but the, the sort of underpinnings of a political philosophy. There's nothing in, in, the, in the Old Testament view of government which warrants what you'd call an 
an autocratic government or a totalitarian government. Nothing of that is there. In fact, it's, it's virtually unprecedented in the ancient world, say 1500 BC, that you'd have any civilization in the world that had something other than a caste system, something other than an oligarchy or an absolute monarchy. And Moses comes along and says, no, fundamentally, we're all equal. You know, even the preamble to the Ten Commandments addresses people in the singular. I am the Lord, thy God, singular, yeah. your yeah. God, not either the body politic as one person or each individual as one person. Either way, it comes out the same. You are the people that are now vested with this authority. And, and, you know, so it seems to me that if we read the Bible asking those kind of questions, we learn a lot about how uh, government should be done. And, and really, in many ways, you go back to you know, people like Blackstone or even John Locke, any of these kind of the, the philosophers of the day back in, uh, you know, the early days of our uh, colonies. Uh, this was the conversation that was going on. I mean, the, the, this was the question that was being asked by people, how we're going to create a government, well, what should it look like? And there was a lot of inquiry into the biblical philosophy that, that fed right in. Even, yeah. you know, you're making the declaration. The declaration, you're right, is not law. It is philosophy. And it is, in fact, the, the official declaration of the political philosophy upon which our constitution would be real. I, as a lawyer, I like to call the, um, the Declaration of Independence our Articles of Incorporation. You know, you start a corporation, you'll have articles filed with the Secretary of State, and it sets forth the fundamental principles, the philosophy by which you're going to run your company, yeah. and then out of that come bylaws. Well, we have Articles of Incorporation, the Declaration, it, it, acknowledges God in heaven, acknowledges all men are created equal, acknowledges inalienable rights, I mean, all of that. And then we have a constitution, which is like our bylaws, okay, given that philosophy, how are we going to make it happen in a practical way? And, and I think, you know, we, we need to dust that off and take another look and, and appreciate the genius of what created this country in the first place. Yeah, no, I agree. And by the way, uh, before we're going to we're going to transition here into some specific examples of some historical things that you've studied. And we, and I, and I'm just going to, by the way, what's the name of the book that you wrote on uh, oh, history? Well, it's a catchy title. It's called historical and chronological context of the Bible. So, you know, yeah, but, sure. uh, but I, I shortened it to just uh, historical context of the Bible. I, I tried to come up with something a little juicier, but you know, that's finally well, what we want well, listen, everyone should go to your website, brucecore.com, B-R-U-C-E-G-O-R-E.com, because, and to YouTube, because they want to hear your lectures on that. And yes, they're lectures, and I get it. Folks, you'll be fascinated because you probably have never even thought about all this stuff before, and you need to, and you'll be amazed at what how you see the Bible connecting. And by the way, you're very honest about times when you're speculating, you know, when you're, you're arguing from where we don't know for certain, but it seems to line up all mm -hmm. the way to no, this is a specific reference that specifically mm -hmm. connects yeah. there. But, um, but so back to political philosophy in the old Testament, what I tell people, and I, I am willing to call myself a Christian libertarian, not because mm -hmm. I like the libertarian party. In fact, I say the libertarian party 
basically runs in the manner that their philosophy is if we can make prostitution and drugs legal, we'll all be free. I mean, that's yeah. kind of how the libertarian party often acts. Right. Although there are good people there in that yeah. organization and I know them and, and, but, but there are many of them that have that idea. That's not what mm -hmm. I'm talking about. I am talking about freedom, the ability for right. every person to make their choices and to reap all the good benefits of good choices and also mm -hmm. to reap all the negative benefits of their bad exactly. choices because yeah. that's how you right. balance out. People will be more cautious and not do stupid right. stuff when they when they so. might pay for it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but they should, but we don't have any envy for someone that's wealthy. Abraham was probably the wealthiest person of his day. There's no yeah. reason to envy him because he was also a got also a godly man, imperfect. Right but godly. So anyway, with that background, I have told people really very clearly, and I think this feeds off what you're saying. God's ideal form of government is such that every individual is responsible directly to him for their actions, mm -hmm. and that there is something of a judicial system, for want of a better word, that can allow disputes to be adjudicated and resolved. Sure. And that's yeah. exactly what existed uh, from the time of Moses through Joshua mm -hmm. on through the judges, even with all right. the imperfections of Israel that you saw through judges, mm -hmm. including one period where there was a person who was a king. Um, but nonetheless, that was his plan. And then by the time we get to first Samuel eight, mm -hmm. God is rebuking Israel for wanting a king. Mm -hmm. And he told them specifically what was going to be the problem with that. And Samuel, yeah. according to God's direction, laid that out very clearly in first Samuel yeah. eight. And those yeah. are all things that we're struggling with in our government, even to this day, which right. does that seem fair and an accurate yeah. description? Yeah. You know, the first Samuel eight has been a bit of a ticklish chapter in some people's minds because it, it looks like, uh, well, these people are rejecting me and, you know, you, you get a very mixed review of the whole idea of having a king. And of course, the critical language there is we want a king like the other nations. That's what they're demanding. And that's really yeah. the crux of the problem. It's not an objection to the king as such, because in fact, the Old Testament, even Moses contemplates there be a king. Deuteronomy 17, he sets down a set of rules applicable to the king. He knew there'd be a king eventually. That wasn't the issue. The issue was what kind of king is he gonna be and the people seem to have wanted a king that looked more like kind of an absolute monarch. You know, Louis XIV, that's what he liked to call himself. I am the state. That's what he wanted yeah. to say. I am, you know, whatever I say is law because I say it. I'm above the law. I am the law. You know, well, that's one kind of king. The Bible never endorses that. In fact, that is seen as a great evil and something to be rejected. But and so that that seems to be what they were asking for, because every king of every other nation was precisely that kind of king. The Pharaoh in Egypt combined religious political authority, the Assyrian kings, about all of them. You really it's not until you get to the Persians that you have it. And that's much later, you know, that you have anything looking like a king with with somewhat limited powers. Uh, Moses is the first one that actually gens up a philosophy of what you call a constitutional monarchy in which the king is a, is a job. And the job involves uh, a certain degree of authority, but the authority is balanced by some very significant restrictions. 
So I heard, in fact, I heard R.C. Sproul say once, maybe you heard this too. He said that in, in ancient Israel, probably the least free person in Israel was the king. Because he was responsible not only to keep all the other laws, but he had a very special set of rules that, that even tied him up more, you know, that, that he had even greater restrictions than, than another person might have. And that was a way of clipping the wings of the monarch so that they didn't spin out of control. And, and you have to say, if you look at Moses and what he was developing in 1500 BC or thereabouts and compare it, there's nothing even like it, even remotely like it. Uh, his system of due process in the judicial order was, was unlike anything. The whole notion of due process was kind of invented by Moses. You know, Hammurabi is 200 years earlier. He decided how you, whether you were guilty or innocent by picking you up and throwing you in the river. And if an alligator ate you, you were, you know, you were guilty. And if you uh, made it to the shore, then you were innocent. And, uh, you know, Moses said, I think there's a better way to do due process here than that. You know, so I, I just think, if we ask the question, you know, what what is what is this really rich treasure of biblical truth giving us? It's a pretty advanced and pretty remarkable system of how we should be doing, uh, the, you know, this kind of governmental thing. Sorry about that. And to cap that, you would say it is a form of limited government. I mean, that is yeah. roughly what God. Exactly. Once, however, one we come to that, that was what yeah. was seen there, and 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 government officials being totally subject to the people and not the other way around, and to God yeah. ultimately, but I mean to, yeah. to the people. Yeah. yeah. Well, so now you talked about so this is a good transition. You just gave one because you have a fascinating discussion in your YouTube videos, and and you have your videos on your website as well too, BruceGore.com. Um, the code, the differences between the Code of Hammurabi. Mm -hmm. and the code of the law given through Moses. Right. Why don't you, you, you may not be able to go in deep detail there, but why yeah. don't you talk about what some of those differences are? Because yeah. that, that's, that's where people get really confused. They think, right. oh yeah, no, he, he copied off of Hammurabi. And I mean, maybe there's some things that are similar enough, but I, he, you know, he claims that it was given to him by God. So mm -hmm. what, but what are the differences between those two codes? Of yeah. Law? Yeah. That's a great question. The, you know, Hammurabi, uh, is usually credited as being the most advanced uh, uh, lawgiver, you would say, uh, of the ancient world up to his time. And he lived in the, around 1700 BC, so about 200 years before Moses, Babylonian. And uh, he is the uh, really the ruler over what was the old Babylonian Empire. There's two Babylonian eras, Neo-Babylon, which was Nebuchadnezzar, you know, a thousand years later, and then uh, Hammurabi, really the main name associated with the early Babylonians. Well, he had a um, uh, code that was, uh, I think it's 282 uh, rules, you might say, provisions of Hammurabi's code. Uh, some of them are quite good. Uh, like I said, his due process procedures probably could stand a fair amount of renovating, but in terms of the actual rules, uh, not bad. You know, mm -hmm. and, and so you have principles against stealing and, and lying and, you know, that sort of thing, and, and as you might expect. Mm -hmm. um, and so we want to give credit where credit is due. The most famous thing that he says that shows up in Moses is called the Lex Talionis, which is the, uh, the rule of the eye. 
uh, and popularly it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, Hammurabi seems to have intended that that be enforced uh, as stated. In other words, if you poked out somebody's eye, the same thing would be done to you in a reciprocal process. Uh, and maybe it was that way or not, although he doesn't have any specific provisions to that effect. His, uh, his, his way of enforcing his rules by, in terms of punishments seems to have been a little different. But anyway, the rule is there. And so that's been one you know, common uh, tie between them. The big difference between Hammurabi and Moses is one, Hammurabi's preamble to his code spends all its time talking about how great Hammurabi is. And yeah. that's why people should trust him because he's the greatest thing since sliced bread, you know. And so the God almost takes back seat to the importance of Hammurabi. You read the preamble to Moses' code, Exodus 19, it's just the opposite. Moses is basically just a servant. And this whole thing is understood as being traced to God. He is the great source and honor between, behind this. The second big difference is that Hammurabi's code is virtually all of it, what's called casuistic code, which means it's structured along the if-then sort of uh, uh, arrangement. If ABC happens, then CEF must follow, you know, that kind of thing where you have an right. if-then kind of arrangement. And then you're supposed to kind of triangulate off of those individual rules to apply it in other situations that may come along later. Moses gives what's called apodictic code, and he's really the first one to do it quite this way. And we call it the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is not stated as if then. It's not uh, if this happens, then this will follow. It's stated as pronouncements. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not uh, perjure yourself. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt, you know. And so on, and some thou shalt, you shall honor your father and your mother, and so on. Well, those are those are powerful, self-sustaining, independent propositions of you might say legal and ethical truth. Don't lie. All right. Uh, don't kill. Okay. Are there exceptions? Well, yeah, as a matter of fact. And so for, for Moses. The apodictic law is the rule that is fixed, eternal, unchanging. And then casuistic law, the if-then comes to construe, to apply the apodictic. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm in a war situation, then I may, in fact, kill. I'm not breaking the rule because, in fact, there are, there are circumstances here that warrant what would otherwise not usually be permissible. Kill means to... Ill, illegitimately kill, you know, that idea. And so you have a fairly sophisticated balance between two different kinds of law in Moses that you really don't have in other systems. In popular current culture, we would say apodictic law is statutory law. A legislator meets, a legislature gathers, they pass a law, it's signed off by the governor or the president, uh, normally, it's apodictic. You will do this. You, you know, it gives a, a guidance of some kind. Uh, <clears throat> more than guidance, it gives a rule. But then you have cases that come out of the courts, which are supposed to take that rule and say, okay, here's how it applies in this situation or that situation. 
And so the greatest uh, casuistic body in our country is the Supreme Court. But all mm-hmm. through the country, we, of course, have courts that are that are charged with doing that. So you would say there's some similarity between them, certainly. But with Moses, there's a pretty, I mean, a very significant leap forward in the sophistication of how the whole legal and political system operates that was not found in Hammurabi. Hammurabi was a step in the right direction. He should be appreciated. He was a good guy, but nevertheless, he didn't quite get uh, to the advanced level that you'd find in Moses. Well, and uh, it was it was a fundamental change. I'm curious how how do we know, based upon your studies, that Moses existed, and how does he connect into uh, history of his time? Where what are some yeah. of the inter- most interesting things that show us where Moses' impact was? And by the way, before I get to that, like a whole lot archaeologically that we know about the old testament did not start to emerge until the 18th and 19th century yeah. is that is that correct well as far as i know that's right i'm not an archaeologist yeah. so i'm not gonna yeah yeah my depth here you know, more than necessary but i think you'd say in the eight in the 1800s 19th century there were some huge uh discoveries uh, austin henry layard was an englishman kind of an english he was like i like to call him the uh 19th century version of Indiana Jones, you know, he was out there kind of an adventurer. He discovered a ton of stuff uh, in Iraq and in those regions that uh, that just were, you know, very important. Uh, he was but, initially um, looking for Nineveh, right? That was yeah, his he was, uh, original. Yeah, got him out there originally, and he found uh, Ashurbanis Paul's library and other things. It was quite a, he was quite a guy. He had a lot of adventures. Somebody should make a movie about his life sometime. Yeah. But uh, nevertheless, the, uh, the question of whether Moses existed, uh, you know, the fact is, uh, except for some rather subtle evidence, we don't have any evidence that Moses existed outside the Bible, as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the evidence of the Bible uh, has to cause everybody to take pause. There was obviously somebody along the way who was an astonishing innovator. And while some people want to say, well, it was all, you know, 500 BC and it was all late, late reconstruction of this or that and critical scholars love to try to poke holes. The fact is the testimony of history and even the testimony of archeology span is that there was a a quite advanced civilization uh, in Palestine, what's now called Palestine in Israel or Canaan uh, that certainly predates, you know, these later uh, hypothetical dates for all of this. And you have to say something happened. Like somebody said once, you know, you look at the Grand Canyon, something happened here, something, you know, and, and you look at the Bible and you realize that this smacks of more than just a couple of inventive people putting together a system of, of, uh, of uh, how to run a government or how to run a, a a court or something like that. Uh, I wouldn't say it's ironclad proof, but I think the 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 evidence certainly weighs heavily in favor of the fact that there was an extraordinary intervention in human history that happened sometime along the way back in that era. There certainly was a Jewish population or a Hebrew population right. in Egypt. That's been verified. There was a Hebrew population in Canaan. 
at a later time, that's been verified and that there's enough known about it to say, you know, there's more here than, than simply just some nomadic Bedouins who kind of migrated around and put up a couple of tents and called it a civilization. There's, right. there's more to be said for it than that. So, you know, I, I, at some point you say maybe archaeology is going to give us definitive proof of some of this eventually, but, but for anybody that has a certain degree of uh, balanced sympathy with the biblical testimony, you don't have to work too hard to believe. You know, well, so I, and I'm curious your thoughts here, because uh, it's also a difference in historical transmission. So mm -hmm. most of the historical evidence and transmission of history that we have, as you point out rightly in your lectures prior to Herodotus, which is the father of history, yeah, was real. It, it's it's not that it's not inaccurate or or unuseful, yeah, yeah. but it certainly leaves out anything negative That's right. and it enhances the positives yeah. and it's usually transmitted through the the um uh for the benefit of and through the instruction of the the king or leader mm -hmm. that was involved whereas biblical transmission of truth and one of the things i was listening to one of your lectures recently about nebuchadnezzar like the only place that we hear about nebuchadnezzar uh, having that seven years off <laughs> right is is Silence. in scripture <laughs> but we also have as you mentioned it is you know we got to be careful with it but it is an argument from silence but we also mm -hmm. don't hear anything That's for right. seven years from yeah. nebuchadnezzar and yeah. so and nebuchadnezzar or anyone wasn't going to or maybe he had and after he died no one wanted to transmit that yeah. because they appreciated him yeah. so that whatever he might have said someone destroyed but the point being that it is interesting that the Old Testament survives, and I don't agree. I mean, we can have a lot of debates over when the actual writings first showed up and all these mm. artists was in 500 BC and they reconstructed, blah, 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 blah. Okay, that's a long discussion, and it's an important one, but it's a long and sometimes pre a precarious one. But the fact is it did transmit that way. And with that kind of information, and it yeah. was not a culture, and I think we have maybe in, historical indications of this, but it was not a culture that was trying to applaud itself. No. It was a culture, <laughs> negative as it could have been, that yeah. that felt itself submitted to God. Am I am I misrepresenting that? No, no, you're you're exactly right, and it, it's it is in fact another anomaly, you could say, of of ancient Hebrew uh, writings, regardless of when it was written. I don't know. You know the name Vishal Mangalwadi. Do you know that name? Yeah. Yes. He's yeah. Uh, he's probably the leading Christian intellectual. You know, in India, uh, grew up in a Hindu background. Uh, was I think he went to Oxford and uh, came to faith at some point along the way. He's written a lot of great books. I'd recommend anything he's ever written is worth reading. But probably the flagship work of his is called The Book That Made Your World. And he writes as, a, as someone from the East, from mm -hmm. India, assessing mm -hmm. Western civilization and pointing out that it's, it's a pretty easy case to make that the, what created Western civilization, which at least used to be viewed as a, as a wonderful advanced expression of human uh, achievements, uh, was the Bible. It was the Bible that made the world. And but what Vishal Mangalwadi says is the first time he, before he was even converted, 
uh, he was just interested because he was becoming more and more aware of this Christian thing, you know, and he realized to be a well-educated guy, he should have some idea what it was. So he just sat down and read the Bible, you know, great idea. And he said, the first time he just sat down, started reading it, took, you know, whatever, a month or so, read through the whole Bible. He said the thing that astonished him was he had never read a book that was so anti-Semitic as the Old Testament <laughs> Hebrew scriptures. He said, you know, you read, you read the Assyrians, you read the Persians, you read the Egyptians, you read the Babylonians, you read all these guys. All they do is talk about how wonderful they are. And, the, you know, the Assyrians will talk about these guys of the splendor of my might, uh, you know, reduce them to, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, slavish uh, obeisance before me, you know, all of this. You read the Hebrew scriptures, they are so brutally honest and critical of even their most esteemed champions. Even David has his Bathsheba, all of these people. If they got a black eye, boy, it's reported just you think, who does that? Who would do that? I mean, it's another argument, really, for, the, for the, the fact that this is a unique book. This is not just another piece of propaganda coming right. down the pike like all these others. The, the, you know, it's, it, may be, it may be accurate, but it's still propaganda because it's highly selective accuracy. Correct. And if anything, the Old Testament is selective in the opposite direction. You know, it makes sure we don't miss any point where there was a screw up back there because because the glory had to go to God. The whole yeah. point was to say, these people, it was not their righteousness, not their brilliance, not their genius. It was God that carried them along in his mercy. And, and that's the message. And, and who makes that up? What humanistic speculative spirit comes along and says, you know, we're a bunch of losers and it's only God that, <laughs> that's, that's, not the, that's not the standard agenda that you read in ancient writings at all. Yeah. Well, and by the way, one of the claims that's out there, if you, if anyone goes on YouTube and you'll see certain videos talking about, yeah, you know, Israel was really not a monotheistic culture that happened later, blah, blah, blah. And I sit back and say, these are people who have studied the archaeology and they say the archaeology shows that. And I just, I laugh at that because I say, that's really funny because uh, you read the Old Testament and these people were constantly running off <laughs> into yeah. right. into right. Uh, uh, multi-theistic yes. uh, right. paths constantly. Yeah. So the archaeology actually proves what the Old Testament yeah, is right. saying it's related good, to monotheism and yeah. not the other way around. That was yeah. the standard was monotheism that they yeah. were breaking constantly. Yeah, exactly. It's a good point. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, so, okay. So in the, in, and I appreciate you taking time with, with me and uh, I want to get some other trinkets. So everyone should go to brucegore.com, brucegore.com and uh, look for them on YouTube because you want to learn a lot about the historical perspective of the Bible. It will enlighten you. It will help you figure out things that you had never thought of before. And it's not going to change your view of scripture of God's providence. It's just going to enhance it all. And that is very, very much worth that. I want to ask you a few questions then about some other areas that I've listened to you talk about okay. that I think could be really enlightening. Mm -hmm. I want to hit on uh, right now, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus the Great. Now, so those are mm -hmm. two different things, right. although very close 
historically yeah. to one another. But let's talk about Nebuchadnezzar. I, I, I touched on it earlier. Tell us some really interesting historical facts about Nebuchadnezzar that the average person reading scripture might not know about, but we're all incredibly significant to what they're reading. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a pretty broad uh, question there. So I'm not quite Pick sure. the best ones. If yeah, of course it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, Nebuchadnezzar is usually um, uh, remembered as the greatest king. Uh, his father was Nabopolassar, who was kind of the self-made, uh, he, he created, you might say, the Babylonian, the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar inherited that. But there are there are some uh, you know he he for example uh, wound up in a city called Carchemish which would be in kind of North Syria still exists to this uh, roughly the same name and uh, he got uh, he was chasing the Assyrian so his first claim to fame was as the Assyrian uh, empire was falling he represented he wasn't the king yet he was a crown prince. But he was the commander of the armies that chased the Assyrian, the skeleton Assyrian army off to Carchemish. And, uh, and actually the Egyptians came up, uh, Necho was the Egyptian pharaoh, uh, to rescue the Assyrians because apparently they had cooked up some deal. That's when King Josiah of Judah was, uh, was killed on the, in the field of Megiddo. So, mm -hmm. so Nebuchadnezzar had his tail whipped. Uh, by the Egyptians early on, and he had to retreat, and it looked like, uh, you know, he wasn't going to amount to much. Well, he came back a few years later uh, as a ruler on steroids, you know, and so he came sweeping through and not only defeated the Egyptians, but just swept through the whole region, including um, uh, Canaan, including Jerusalem, including uh, all of that uh, region, and wound up um, taking people back to Babylon, including Daniel, as the biblical narrative tells it, and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego under the uh, Babylonian names. And um, so you, you think, uh, well, Nebuchadnezzar uh, certainly is a known quantity in ancient history. We have his annals, we have his writings, we have all the good stuff, we don't have any of the bad stuff, you know, but we know enough to know that there was really this guy he is responsible for what call, what's called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Nobody knows what they look like, but I imagine they were beautiful. He married a Median princess, uh, and the story is that he created all these hanging gardens to please her because she was from Media, which would now be kind of the mountains of Afghanistan, and she was used to living in, in beautiful surroundings with streams and stuff, you know, so he tried to recreate that for her, and he had the money to do it. Uh, so you know he was a, he was a, he was a guy that uh, really did earn the uh, it was, in fact the hanging gardens were reputedly one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and, and so on the report we have of what he did in connection with Daniel and the book of Daniel and uh, and certainly um, uh, his reports of visions and you know Daniel two and all of those uh, the only source we have for that is is the Old Testament we don't have any any indication in Babylonian records of any of that, nor would we expect it. But it is interesting that what we know about the story of Nebuchadnezzar certainly is compatible with what's reported biblically. These things could have happened. In other words, it's not as if there's 
there's inconsistencies that are so so huge that you just couldn't reconcile the two stories. They do have a kind of uh, compatibility, even if we don't have any other uh, record of this outside of the Old Testament. So interesting guy. Uh, I think actually by the time he'd spent seven years as a as a wild beast out there eating grass and finally got his senses back, I think he probably became a true believer. I think we might see the guy in heaven. I find that interesting. Yeah, no, I find that interesting. I've always felt that for all my Christian life, reading that, that yeah. uh, you, and, and what you explain, and, and by the way, explain a little bit of the, how the history, the actual history that we have from him changed after that, because I always felt like that you really did see one. First of all, God said Nebuchadnezzar's my tool, like God's yes. providentially yeah. meant for him right. to be a tool to reform Israel. And then it really feels like, and I'm saying right. feel because I don't have all the yeah. actual evidence, but it feels like he really was reformed himself. Yeah. What changed yeah. in his history after that, that maybe seems to indicate well, it might just, have happened. Yeah. I, you know, you, you look at Nebuchadnezzar before uh, Daniel chapter four, that's when that kind of period of his you know, losing his mind took place. You look at him before, he certainly tips his hat to the uh, God of, of Daniel. I mean, he, and he does typical totalitarian stuff. Everybody is going to respect this God or will burn their house down. You know, yeah. it's <laughs> that, that sort of, well, that's not exactly a Christian spirit. Uh, but, but after he comes back, as it were, from this beastly, uh, you know, probably seven years or so of of being uh, just out of his tree. Um, the tone of what he says toward the end of chapter four, that's the last we hear of him really in, in, in the, the book of Daniel, um, does reflect what at least strikes me as a little, a little bit of humility there for the first time, that he realizes that the God of heaven and earth really is uh, a greater authority than Nebuchadnezzar could ever hope to be. And, and I think, you know, we, we speak about Christian regeneration where God changes the heart. I think in Nebuchadnezzar's case, regeneration took about seven years. <laughs> I think yeah, when he, yeah. you know, when he came back, there was a, there was a heart that was there. You, the, uh, in fact, uh, later Daniel has a vision and some people think the vision is, is actually of Nebuchadnezzar where you do have a heart that's placed in this individual uh, so i don't know i i, I can't uh, i'm not going to be dogmatic about it but it just seems to me you have a little bit of a different tone uh with nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter four from that point on yeah the narrative is talking about others it gets to belshazzar who was like the great great grandson of nebuchadnezzar and you get cyrus and so on and then daniel's visions are the last part but but uh that's all that's all yeah. i can really say it's just it's speculation but i think it has ha at least how do we see that in the historical record? Because you refer to some of those uh, aspects. Yeah. Of it too. Again, speculation. We, we grant yeah. you, but it seems to indicate maybe. Yeah. How does that play? Well, out? the you know Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, there's a seven year of seven years of silence. So it's like he was on vacation for seven years or something. Now, how do we know it was seven years? They've dated that, and it seems well, to be that way, pretty close and, at least. Yeah, I'm I'm using that number. It's it's an extended period. Yeah. And whether you could do the arithmetic and say it's exactly seven years, I'm not sure, because their annals aren't necessarily all that precise. 
Okay. But but it's certainly more than a few years. It's it's yep. it's going to be in that region, something right, right. like that, you know. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar, when he comes back, does seem to be even in the Babylonian records a little bit of a different guy. Uh, he was much more warring before. There are a couple of skirmishes that take place later, but it does seem that he's less inclined to go out and conquer the world anymore. Now he's older. But besides that, it seems that there's maybe a difference of uh, philosophy about life that is there. Again, we have to, you have to bring something to the Babylonian records because it's not like anybody's saying this expressly. Right. And you think you can legitimately infer some of this. It's not incompatible with what's there, but at the same time, it's not as if this is just cut and dried and it would convince any, any critic that would uh, happen to review it. Well, let's jump ahead in history just a little further, because this is a close connection in scripture to a real person, Cyrus the Great. By the mm-hmm. way, I I am very active on Twitter, and I do Twitter spaces, which is just a discussion forum type thing. And I was, I've was i been from time to time talking to folks actually in Iran who are using mm-hmm. VPNs to hide oh, yeah. because they, yeah. they want to, there there are those people who want to go back to the Shah and get rid, get away yeah. from all this. But a lot of people, and in your discussions on Cyrus the Great, you show his temple or excuse me, his burial place right. uh, in a picture in one of yours. Uh, this, Cyrus is still greatly revered by the Persian yeah. people. And I think probably for good reason, he's one of the most enlightened mm-hmm. uh, kings and rulers in the ancient world. I, I guess Alexander the Great, you would throw in there to some degree, but mm-hmm. but not quite in the way that Cyrus was, because no. even though Cyrus did go to war and so forth, he wasn't out just to destroy people's lives. He <laughs> was expanding and building a kingdom of value. Yeah. So tell me how Cyrus historically and biblically connects in and, and yeah. what we need to understand there. Yeah, you know, Cyrus is, uh, he, was a, he was actually a, a Persian prince when the Medians were dominating, and he wound up uh, defeating his, uh, his uh, Median, uh, I think it was father-in-law, and was able to take over the whole Persian world. And uh, he does seem to have been an unusually enlightened character. And I don't know what it was necessarily in his upbringing or anything of the sort, but he's treated very cordially in the Old Testament. Uh, he's, he's, not, he's viewed basically in heroic terms in all the reports about him. He's actually called at one point in, in Isaiah chapter 45 uh, a Messiah. He's called an anointed one, you know. Uh, which is pretty high esteem for a non-Jewish person. I mean, sometimes Jewish leaders were called Messiah, you know, the mm-hmm. anointed one. Cyrus is the only non-Jewish person to ever have that designation. But uh, his, the story of his interaction with uh, Croesus of Sardis, uh, that's the first time you really see kind of something of his uh, character that, that, as the story goes, Croesus knew that Cyrus was going to be in the vicinity and Croesus, the ruler, he was a fabulously wealthy ruler. You've heard of the wealth of Croesus. Well, this is the Croesus, you know. Um, And he had sent to the Oracle of Delphi, uh, should I go out and challenge Cyrus in battle? And, you know, and and, uh, 
the oracle, of course, with uh, great studied ambiguity, says, if you fight Cyrus, a great empire will be destroyed. And Croesus, of <laughs> course, you know, thought he was talking about destroying you know, the, the uh, empire of Persia. And as it turns out, it was the empire of Croesus that was destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. Croesus was about to be executed. And as they were lighting the fire, and the fire was actually kind of coming up around him, but before it had reached him, uh, Cyrus, or, uh, Croesus looks up into heaven and says uh, something like, oh, Solon, Solon, uh, you were right, Solon. And, and Cyrus is standing there thinking, what is this? This is, and, and they had to quickly put out the fire. It's like that in itself, you know, this guy, wait a minute, what is this reference to Solon? Maybe Cyrus knew the name Solon. He was the great lawgiver of Athens and mm -hmm. thought, you know, maybe, maybe I need to take a second look at this guy. So he extinguished the fire and, and actually hired Croesus to be his lifelong um, consultant. So Croesus uh, had a job, you know, he, he went along with uh, Cyrus. I mean, that you just see a little bit of the humanity of him that you would look for pretty much in vain, I think, in other ancient rulers. He was a great engineer. Uh, he's the one who famously, uh, you know, the Euphrates is kind of a, a wide uh, but shallow river at points. And so he built a bunch of canals to drain off water enough to lower the, the, uh, the uh, sort of elevation of the river so that the uh, Persian army could sneak in under cover of darkness uh, and take Babylon without shot being fired. And that's the story of Daniel chapter five, where mm -hmm. Belshazzar, who's uh, this kind of arrogant uh, ruler, his dad was out of town, uh, who Nabonidus was the actual ruler, but he'd been gone for some years. And so Belshazzar is there celebrating, you know, and telling people not to worry about those Persians that had Babylon under siege. They had plenty of stores. They could survive a siege for 10 years, no problem. And of course, uh, meantime, uh, you know, the river is being lowered. The Persians come in under the wall and they're able to just take the city overnight. Belshazzar's put to death, as Daniel says. Uh, well, that's not so easy to do. I mean, you know, I think Cyrus was a little like Julius Caesar, who was a brilliant uh, engineer, and he did stuff like that as well. These guys that are military, but they're also smart. You know, yeah. they're not just they're not just uh, teaching people how to shoot bows and arrows. He knows how to manipulate the environment to his advantage, and and so and then when he finally takes uh, Babylon. He finds this Jewish population there. And as the story goes, uh, Josephus makes uh, a passing allusion to this. And so we think it may be true, but Josephus can sometimes exaggerate things a bit. But he says that Cyrus was shown by the Jewish scholars living in Babylon that Cyrus himself was named by name 200 years earlier by Isaiah in the book of Isaiah. Uh, now, critical scholars go berserk with that. All oh, that couldn't have happened, blah, blah, blah. You know, but anyway, that's what Josephus says. Mm -hmm. And if that's true, uh, you know, Cyrus, to his credit, uh, realizes that that maybe some of his success is not just that he's such a smart guy, but maybe actually he is serving a greater, you know, heavenly purpose here. He certainly authorizes the people of Israel to return, whoever wants to, back to Jerusalem. He authorizes them to start building the temple. I mean, these are all things that, that speak well of his character. Uh, 
his only stipulation was he wanted all of them to pray for him. <laughs> you know, yeah, so yeah. Well, if you're, if you're going to build a temple, you make sure you pray for me. And uh, so, you know, I, I don't know what the state of his heart was. I don't think we have strong evidence that he came to any genuine faith uh, in the God of Israel, but who knows? I mean, these are God's problems, not mine, but I think in terms of the report concerning him, he's, He's a guy that should be respected, and and, uh, and th th there's good reason for people to this day to be celebrating his memory uh, well, there in that part of the world. And that's Nehemiah and Ezra, right? So yeah. uh, Nehemiah, if his account is accurate, he had a great deal of respect for Cyrus as well, yeah. too, as an individual, yeah. because yeah. he, through his entire uh, effort to rebuild the temple there, he was yeah. not looking to undermine him and and draw him off. He just yeah. wanted the worship of God to Yeah, return. it was actually his successor. You know, Cyrus died uh, in about, I think it's 530. Uh, he was followed by his son, who didn't have nearly the, the intellectual horsepower of Cyrus. His name was Cambyses. He died in about uh, five... Uh, oh, I'd say 22, uh, outside of Egypt, there was a short interregnum in which a guy called Pseudosmertus ruled. He was a Median. He was a usurper. Uh, he was assassinated by a guy named Darius, Darius the Persian, and he's famous in the Old Testament. So the, the um, prophecy of, da of uh, Haggai and the prophecy of Zechariah take place under Darius. And the return of Ezra and the return of Nehemiah are actually taking place. In other words, the temple is built. It's finished in 516, 70 years after 586. There's the 70 years that Jeremiah mentions. And then uh, a successor to Darius is a king named Artaxerxes. And that's around the year 435. So we're really a ways down the road by the time we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, Cyrus is still remembered warmly, but he's about a hundred years earlier yeah. uh, by the time we get to the record of uh, Nehemiah, Ezra. So um, tell me then kind of, I want to ask you this question as we get toward the end of this. When we look at all these things, when we look at what's happening even in the United States now, but, but yeah. to kind of give us some understanding of how to think through where we're at right now, what do you think is the main way or ways that God shows his character throughout history? And I know a lot of people, we're always going to have, there, there are going to be some people listen to this that are more critical <laughs> of, of, sure. of uh, ancient history as it relates to Israel. And they're going to scoff at it. I, I think, you know, we, we, it's, it's not that they have no points. There's some things we don't know, but honestly, they, they shove things aside in ways that are absolutely wrong, mm -hmm. just as bad as it is to read yeah. in as Christians, things that right. we, we have no right to read into. But there is a way that God shows his character in history, even throughout the recorded history we have, right. with the help of scripture. What do you think yeah. that that is? How does that happen in your mind? Yeah. Sorry, my phone, my wife will pick that up in a second. So no, no worries. I can edit um, that if we need to. Yeah. I hope she's going to pick it. I'm going to let it. Yeah, she did. Okay. I think she got it. Um, you know, I... I, this my short answer to this would be 
if you look if, first of all, if you look at the Bible as a historical record that has a certain philosophy of life and of God and a certain kind of God with a certain kind of character, and you say, okay, to affirm that there is God is nothing new. Every ancient civilization, of course, affirmed deity or deities of various kinds, Ahura Mazda, Persia. I mean, you've got all of these uh, uh, deities out there. But we say, okay, if you look at the biblical record, is there anything that would suggest that this is just something other than one more example of one more God? And it seems to me that, that the one thing that really does astonishingly separate the God reported of in the Bible from any other deity of the ancient world of any description, any place, is that this God is, in a word, holy, uh, and that the holiness speaks to absolute, pure integrity and self-sufficiency uh, such that this God doesn't need anything. He only gives, but he gives in a way that leads people toward his own holiness. You know, you're going to look for that in vain in the Egyptian religions or any other. You, you just don't find it. You know, the uh, Gilgamesh epic speaks about God swarming like flies over the sacrifice. I mean, you, you just have these grotesque pictures. But the God of the Old Testament is really in a class by himself. True or not, anybody reading it would have to say, well, even if I don't believe it, it certainly does suggest this is a unique understanding of the God of history, uh, at least as reported. That God is perfectly consistent with the deity we bump into in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he's said to be holy, 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 just you know, raising that to the highest level of emphasis. It's repeated in the New Testament. Everything we hear about God in the New Testament is compatible with that same theme. So when you start looking down through history, it does seem that if we're looking for a common denominator that more or less ties together an undergirding theme that is not only compatible with the Bible, but is internally consistent through history, it's that idea. You know, when George Whitfield was preaching, uh, the sermons he preached were sermons that kept calling people back to repentance before a holy God. And, and that's not to mention Jonathan Edwards, you know, who was, right. who was way beyond Edwards and way beyond Whitfield in the same way. The work of God in history, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Augustine, the great thinkers, even Thomas Aquinas, uh, St. Anselm. Again and again, you say, you know, if you look for something that ties them together, he keeps coming back. This is the God of holy, perfect, purity, integrity, majesty, power, never a blemish, never, you know, never something that would raise questions about the character of this, which is never <laughs> all the other gods. You know, they, they look like overgrown humans, but this one is kind of in a class by himself. And I, I, I guess that'd be the place I'd start to say, you know, if there's a dominant theme that just keeps coming up again and again, God will not tolerate sin. If people disobey God, they will finally pay consequences because he's a holy God, but he's a merciful God. So if we'll acknowledge that we're just corrupt sinners and cast ourselves on his mercy, he will in his holiness give us mercy. 
But if we're going to harbor arrogance and a kind of attitude that I can get along without you, well, God says, okay, fine. Let's see how that works out for you, you know? And, and uh, so I, I, that'd be my short answer to the question. Absolutely. I, I think it's, it's the holiness of ab- God. Absolutely. And stay with me and uh, until after I close this up, but let me, okay. I also want to make this point too, in relation to what you said, there's, there are many ways that God's holiness and character show up even in actual history. When you hear about Israel, it's not yeah. deep and full, but it's there. Mm-hmm. But the one thing you never see of God in history is a caricature of himself and every yeah. God in, in that is a part of any culture, all these small G gods, they're always yeah. caricatured in some way or yeah. another. God is but, never caricatured either in Jewish history or mm-hmm. when he is referred to in any form or fashion in actual mm-hmm. history. And I, I think, um, I think it speaks a lot and it's, it's subtle and people won't pay attention to it in some ways because they're critical, but you know, mm-hmm. I, you can't, yeah. you can't uh, convince everybody, but that's the way it is. Yeah. You know, I do a, I do a daily Bible reading uh, in a, another podcast called justice and kindness. Uh, Micah mm-hmm. six, eight, as you can tell is. Oh, now let's see. Now here you're against niceness, but now you're there for you're for niceness. Is that right? <laughs> I finally got no, you no, 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 no. I made that <laughs> distinction earlier. There's a huge difference between kindness and niceness. Okay, you win. Yeah, you yeah, got it. exactly. Huge difference. Uh, but Mike, Micah six eight is is fundamental. It, you know, it's it is a, yeah. a good foundational. I hate the three point sermon. Like there's there's something more to life than three point sermons, mm-hmm. and three point sermons usually are designed by men who want to make a point for themselves for their right. own self aggrandizement than for God's. Right. aggrandizement right but um um but anyway i go through and and i use the mcshane's daily bible reading plan on that so i've got it going all year long but anyway up until this point in the year it we've been in the pentateuch and Mm -hmm. you i think it's i've always felt this way but it's just been another reiteration for me over the last year of the a view of god's holiness that is is really you can't substantially get until you read through the pentateuch people will grab out i i remember here ralph reed who used to run christian coalition and runs faith and freedom he's been a good friend of mine since the 1980s Mm. he was on the bill maher show one time Mm. i saw and bill maher talked about these you know uh disgusting punishments or whatever and seemingly unjust punishments (laughs) in the old testament and then you know, if you have a sense of the Pentateuch where people like Bill Maher grab that out to try to get you, you kind of miss the whole scope of it unless you go all yeah. the way through it. Yeah. And especially when we, we're not going to talk about it now, but you can get into a discussion of the moral law and yeah, the judicial. Sure. There, you know, there's an understanding of all this that, that's a, a substantive discussion. But if you pull out that stuff and don't get a whole sense of what's being said there, you miss what God's holiness is. And because most Christians don't go through the Pentateuch, the first five books of scripture, (laughs) sadly, as they should, then they forget what God's holiness is all about. And it is about being set apart. It is about restraining oneself as it relates to others and subduing oneself to God's righteousness. That is badly missing in the church in my mind today. But when we look at history, I think we can get that sense of this if we look at it honestly and look at it deeply as we should mm-hmm. how that would radically transform the interaction of christians 
Absolutely. into uh, what this culture, I would, I would love to see that, but, uh, yeah. but anyway, so everyone should go to your website, brucegore.com. Tell us what they're going to find there just before we close down here and what they, what, uh, what the benefit of going there would be for them and also to your, YouTube. well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you all of uh, um, my suggestion. If somebody's just interested, you know, uh, I would say it's more convenient and speedier to just go to YouTube, go to the, the search bar there, type in my name, Bruce Gore, and it'll, I think I'll be the first thing that pops up. And uh, if you uh, click on the picture of my wife and I standing there smiling, you know, you'll get to my channel and uh, then click the playlist. And of course I've got quite a few, I think I've got something like, I don't know, 12 to 15 playlists. Mm-hmm which are self-explanatory. So at that point, right. if a person's interested in a Bible study, then I've got stuff on Paul's letters. I've got, I'm right now doing the Gospel of John, working through that. I've got this historical stuff on the revolution, church history, Bible history. So, you know, it's uh, it's all there. If you go to my website, you'll get the same thing, but you have to kind of poke around a little bit. And I've got some more structured courses that are available through the website which I've actually ginned up for homeschoolers. So it's not necessarily what would be interesting to just a casual uh, visitor, but that's more the kind of thing you'll find there. So I, I just say go to YouTube and, and it'll, it'll be easy enough to navigate from there. Well, and I'm going to share some links when we put the podcast out to a couple of the okay. videos referenced on some of the topics we talked about, maybe express a couple others. And certainly I'm going to give them the link to your website and also to your YouTube channel so people can uh, do that, but uh, stay with me for a moment, Bruce, but Bruce, I'm grateful for you taking some time with me just out of the blue. uh, (laughs) I was blessed and honored to be able to go through some of your videos because I'm just a geek on history and knowledge and Mm -hmm. philosophy and different things. So I'm constantly, I'm 58 years old and I'm still trying to train and, and myself into young guy. I'm I'm 74 years old. So, you know, you're a geek. (laughs) You got a long way to go, man. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, sadly, I'm not that much younger, I guess. Right. You know, we're kind of getting up there, but, but anyway, I, I appreciate you taking some time. This has been fantastic information. I hope we can do it again. And I just want to thank you for taking some time with me. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.